Our Heavenly Father, each week we gather as your people to worship you. And Father, in that time that we take, we are preoccupied with many things. Like Martha, we are busy, if not with our hands, in our hearts, and in our minds. We are thinking, Lord God, of things that were not done in the week that has been. We are taken up, O Lord God, with concern about things that need to be done today and in the week to come. And in all of that distraction, Father, the contemplation of your holiness is is pushed to the margin when it ought to be at the center. When our deepest desire, though we are not able always to articulate or even express it, our deepest desire is to stand in awe of you like Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah 6, and to see the train of your glory fill this place so that we are struck and are trembling with holy fear and reverence to hear the, the cherubim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And that your holiness, that weight of your glory would so fall upon us that our very breath would be filled with the presence of your grace and majesty. And it is indeed, Father, your holiness that is so desperately lacking in our world. There are unholy people, Father, who exist and who do unholy things. Our screens, our televisions, our phones, and our computers are filled with unholy things. We look, O oh Lord God, and hear of war in Ukraine. We hear, O oh Lord God, of rumblings of war perhaps between China and Taiwan. We hear as well, Lord God, war and unholy things done amongst our own country as we criminalize and do violence to one another simply because one has more than another or one looks different or speaks differently than another. We know in our heart, Lord God, because your word says it, these things ought not to be. And yet, Father, they are. And you have called us and send us out into this world to be salt, to be light, to be reflectors and magnifiers and proclaimers of your holiness. Because you are a holy God. And you require a holy people to worship you. And the good news is you make us holy. We who were unholy from birth, your enemies, as we have sung, now made holy, made your friends, made your children, in whom your spirit dwells, that we may now cry out, Abba, Father. We thank you that your holiness has come to us in Jesus Christ. Your spirit indwells us so that we may walk in holiness. Help us now, O oh Lord God, to fulfill our calling, our mission, as a holy people serving a holy God in the midst of an unholy generation. For your glory, and for the honor and glory of your Son and the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You will notice when I begin reading uh, Zechariah 5, there is a, a notable, a noticeable change in the tone 
of the prophecy. Up to this point, the, the prophecy itself, the visions have been very optimistic, very promising, very encouraging. You get to Zechariah 5, and there's a, there's a change. It's as if we're listening to a, 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 a symphony, and, we're, and the, the first part of the symphony is very bright and bubbly and, and enthusiastic. And then suddenly, the next movement begins, and everything is now played in the minor key. The music, the tempo slows down, and we are drawn in by the slowed, slowed tempo and the ominous uh, notes of uh, the minor key. And so Zechariah, in, these, in this one vision that has two parts, begins in verse 1 of chapter 5, Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, its width is 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. When I uh, was a student at uh, Gordon-Conwell, uh, I earned tuition money by working as a caretaker on an estate in Manchester by the sea with a classmate and friend. Our uh, we did everything there. We mowed lawn, we trimmed bushes, we watered geraniums, lots of geraniums. We painted, uh, tended to more geraniums, uh, looked after a whole bunch of things on the estate. I remember one winter I polished brass the entire winter. But it paid, our, paid my tuition. Our boss was a guy named Ray. And uh, he was a quirky guy, he was an older guy. He'd worked for the owner of the estate for many years. And he always referred to the owner as the mister. And whenever the mister had a particular job for us to do, the mister would communicate that to Ray, and then Ray would tell us, and then we would carry out that particular request. One of the requests that the mister had had to do with a, a piece of land that as you drove up the long driveway to the estate, you saw this as you came up to the big house. It was a field about the size of a football field, and it was overgrown with weeds and briars and brambles and all sorts of uh, ungainly things that compared to the rest of the estate, which was wonderfully landscaped, thanks to yours truly and others, 
Uh, it was an eyesore. And my friend and I, as we drove up the driveway every day, we would have this conversation. As the summer wore on, we kept thinking, when is he going to ask us to go into that field? And sure enough, on one of the hottest days in July, the word came down from the mister, communicated to us through Ray, clean out the big field. And so my friend and I, we really armed ourselves for war. We went out this field, and it, it took us 10 days, two weeks of, of hard, sweaty toil, pulling up briars, yanking out weeds, removing all sorts of debris and brush, and then finally the field was cleared, and then we planted it with tulips and wildflowers and marigolds and daylilies and rhododendrons and azaleas, all sorts of flowering bushes, and it was just a transformation that took place. There was new uh, plantings then thrived because the brambles, the briars, the, the vines had all been removed. A similar process is described here in Zechariah 5. That the Lord, instead of cleaning out briars, brambles, and vines, the Lord, in fact, is cleaning out the immorality and the iniquity and the idolatry and the wickedness that exists inside the nation of Israel. And the cleaning out forms the content of uh, Zechariah's sixth vision. That's why there's this change in tone. In part one of the vision, Zechariah sees this enormous scroll that is flying. I think we can put a picture of it on the, on the screen here. It sort of gives you an idea. That's an artist's rendering, of course. But that's to give you an idea of the dimensions. This thing is about 20 feet uh, or 30 feet uh, long by 15 feet. It's gigantic. And it has writing on both sides, which, again, is unusual, in addition to its giant size. And then the angel says to Zechariah, this scroll is the curse that goes out over the whole land. And it's going to contain the curse that will clean out the house of the one who, who steals and the one who swears falsely. And then in the second part of the vision, we'll go to that one, if you will, Carson, um, Isaiah sees, uh, Zechariah rather, sees a basket that is going out and is carried by two winged women with the wings of a stork. Um, and they're carrying, as you see, from Jerusalem to Shinar, which is, uh, we'll find out, the, the land of Babylon. And inside this basket, on which is a place, a lead cover, is a, a woman uh, known as wickedness. And then immediately as uh, Zechariah is shown, the woman, the covers thrust down back on it. We'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Let's go back to the, the shot of the scroll because that's the context of the vision. Now let's unpack the content. So we get to the flying scroll. What does it mean? Well, it tells you what it means right from the text. It's the judgment of God. And it's the judgment of God that is thorough and it is inescapable. The scroll, as I said, measures 30 feet long by 15 feet high. The idea here is that its gigantic size guarantees that everyone is going to see it. But there's something else to the dimensions of this scroll that is interesting and is important. It's 30 by 15, 30 feet by 15 feet. Those are the dimensions of the courtyard of Solomon's temple, the original temple that was built in Jerusalem. And the courtyard in Solomon's temple is where legal proceedings and judgments were rendered. 30 by 15 also are the dimensions of the two cherubim that stood tall in the 
temple that guarded the way to the Holy of Holies. And so the dimensions, 30 by 15 of this scroll, speak to the fact that the origin of this scroll comes from God himself, from that Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God had his presence there. So this scroll appears to be sent exactly out from the presence of God. And the angel then tells Zechariah that the This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. The scroll, in essence, is a covenant document. And the covenant that is referred to by its presence is the covenant that existed, that God established with Moses on Mount Sinai. Every covenant has a list of blessings and curses. You want to get a sense of what those are, you can go home this afternoon and read through Deuteronomy 28. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. In this instance, the scroll is written on either side, both sides, because the the number of sins, if you will, (laughs) committed by the nation are so numerous, it it takes up both sides of the scroll. And it's going to clean out the house, says the angel, of everyone who steals and everyone who swears falsely. Why is the scroll flying? Because flight indicates swiftness. Flight indicates inescapability. So God's judgment here is going to be swift, it's going to be thorough, and it's going to be inescapable. So I told you this is a very ominous thing. But here's the thing about what's happening in this vision, this first part of the vision. Before, when God dealt with his people and judged them, he would use foreign powers to do that. He used Assyria to judge the northern kingdom in 722. He used Babylon to judge the southern kingdom in 586. He delegated his judgment to these nations. They were the agents of his vengeance. Here, however... There is a dramatic turn because now it is God himself who will visit his people with judgment and justice. God himself will come and he will administer the penalty for disobedience, the curses. It's the Lord of hosts now, the one who sits above the cherubim who will render justice to covenant breakers. It's the God of Sinai who covered himself with darkness like a cloak and now will remove that cloak, unleash the consuming fire of his glory upon the covenant breakers. And when God covers himself with a cloak to conceal his glory, it's not to hide from us. It's to protect us. (laughs) So when he throws off that cloak... And he reveals his glory, in this case, to judge. It is because, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the vision of the scroll, because of its emphasis on holiness, that God is so concerned about his people living good and holy and righteous lives, the scroll itself fits the model of how God deals with his people. That first... He saves, first he redeems, and then he instructs. It's the pattern that God followed when he rescued 
Israel from bondage in uh, Egypt when they were enslaved. He did not give Israel the law until he had emancipated them from slavery in Egypt. And in the same way, that's how God deals with us. He doesn't expect us to practice what Jesus preaches until after he delivers us from our sins. Once he makes us his children, then he tells us how to live. At the same time, there is this evidence of discipline that disobedience among his people must be dealt with, must be addressed. Because in the case of the exiles, they had been returned to their homeland. And you go back to chapter 1 and you read when God speaks to the prophet and he says, Do not be like your forefathers. I sent prophet after prophet after prophet warning them to repent so that I would not come to them in judgment. The same is done for the exiles who've returned to the land. Because having returned them to their homeland, having now promised to deliver and protect them from their enemies all around, that's where these visions build on one another. Having restored the, the high priest, having restored the sacrificial system, having promised to restore and reconstruct the temple, having done all this, God must now do one more thing. He must deal decisively with the sin that is still existing among his people, and he must do so out of a wholesome concern for his holiness. He will clean out the covenant breakers from among the people, and he will send the source of their idolatry back to where it came. And the sins in particular that God is going to punish, it's interesting that he doesn't give a list of sins. He just says two. Because these two sins that he lists are representative of breaking all of the commandments. Stealing and swearing falsely. Because thieves violate God's holiness by breaking the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. It also breaks the commandment, does stealing. Stealing breaks the commandment that Jesus lays down where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't be loving your neighbor if you're stealing from them. Those who swear falsely violate God's holiness by lying, thereby breaking the Ninth Commandment. They're bearing false witness. It also breaks the third commandment because they end up taking the the name of the Lord in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain in in this instance is no better than reducing God to the level of some kind of tribal deity who can be controlled and manipulated just by saying his name. Like some kind of good luck charm. Or to use it to curse others. If you've ever driven on 95 or 80 and have maybe driven too slowly or you didn't mean to, you cut someone off. Like the other drivers using God's name in a way not intended for its original use. All of this to say that God demands holiness from his people because a holy God must have holy people. You see what God has done here? He has to- he's restored the exiles. He's promised their protection. He's promised to be a wall of fire around them, the glory in their midst. He has restored the priesthood. 
He's going to give them a place to worship by reconstructing the temple under Zerubbabel's leadership. Now they must learn once again what it means to worship him. It's that same pattern. First he restores, then he instructs. First he creates a place where worship is to be done, then he focuses and concentrates on the heart of the worshiper. A holy God must have a holy people. One scholar, we wonder, like, why, is, why are the dimensions there? Why the, you know, the measurements of 30 by 15? Why the, the basket, which is in, in likelihood uh, just a, an ephah, it's a big bushel? Why these instruments, if you will, of measurement and weight? Well, it's, it's likely, and the mention of stealing and, and swearing falsely, one scholar uh, suggests that God is using these things, measurement and width and things like that, because he is judging those still in the nation who have returned, who are worshiping money and material gain at the expense of loving God and their neighbor. These are among the sins for which Israel is punished and sent into exile. The worship of money, remember, it breaks the commandments 1 and 8, right? Nor are the gods before me. You worship money, you make an idol of it. It allows you not to love your neighbor because you're hoarding for yourself something that God has given to you to be used to bless others. Remember, too, if you go back to our, our CG lesson where Jesus cleanses the temple, it is the love of money that transforms the temple from a house of prayer into a den of thieves. So God does deal decisively with sin because he is holy. He wants a holy people. He does not trifle with those who trample his holiness. And the vision sends the following message to the exiles, the likely 50,000 or so who return. They must be holy as God is holy. Do not be like your ancestors, says the Lord, who transgressed my law and paid dearly for it. You have an opportunity to start fresh with a clean slate. There's another thing that's happening with this as well, because the, the scroll judgment resembles... Um, the, the last and final, the tenth and final plague that God sent upon Egypt in Exodus 12. Remember, that's the plague that prompted Pharaoh to emancipate Israel from slavery. In Exodus 12, God sends the destroyer at night throughout the entire land of Egypt to kill all of the firstborn of the Egyptians, passing over all of the homes of the Israelites who had painted lamb's blood on the lintels of the doorways leading into their home. They had to stay in their house or else fall victim and pray to that. The tenth plague takes place at night. The scroll judgment takes place at night. But that's where the similarity ends. Because in Exodus 12, as I just said, the destroyer goes throughout the land of Egypt and devastates Egyptian households. Here, however... There is an ominous turn because God will not pass over the homes of his own people, but he will enter into them and remain like a house guest that moves in and isn't there for just a day or two, but is going to settle and won't leave until he has destroyed everything in that house. The judgment of God is thorough, and it is inescapable. 
And it begins, as Peter reminds us, with the household of God. Ominous tone. Because God is holy. He requires, he demands a holy people. The scroll judgment also brings to mind Moses' warning to the tribes of Reuben and Gad. In Numbers 32, Reuben and Gad, along with the half-tribe of Manasseh, they decide that, you know, life is pretty good on the east side of the Jordan. We're going to settle here. We have enough land for our flocks. Our people can grow. We can build. And Moses says, you can't do that. We're supposed to cross over the Jordan and go into Canaan. They said, no, we like it here. He says, all right, you can settle here on one condition, that all of your fighting men must go with us and conquer and con- uh, the, the promised land. And then Moses tells them that if they fail to keep their promise in uh, Numbers 32, 23, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. So here's the case. So Israel is restored from exile. They're in their own land. But they're still dabbling in those sins that they practiced either through their ancestors or while they were still in Babylon. Because we have this idea that somehow the the Jews that went into exile were were still getting up every morning and and praying and, and having their devotions. Not so. They likely were more Babylonian than they were Jewish. We come to faith in Christ. Yes, and he gives us a pure heart. Yes, he gives us a clean mind. But there are still some idols we cling to. There are still some practices, some baggage we bring with us, some pet sins that we still accommodate and allow to interfere. Some greed, a little bit of idolatry, some lust. And we make excuses for that. We cover it over by calling it ambition, calling it an ability to provide for my family calling it only doing what's right by those whom I love. And you got to look out for number one. And God says, that's not how this works. That's not what holiness looks like. Holiness is not giving God just a tenth or just a portion of your heart or your life or your mind or your family or your job or your career. It's giving him the whole thing because he's given it to you. The brain that you have that makes you smart enough to do the job you do, he gave you that brain. The hands that he gave you to do the marvelous and creative things with those hands, he made them and gave you the skill to use them. The family that you have, that you have built and you've created and you've nurtured, that's his gift. And we hold tightly to these things, and we make temporal things ultimate things as if they are eternal, and they are not. And God is reminding us here to hold loosely to the things he gives us because they are gifts, and they are to be presented back to him in acts of worship. The scroll judgment here issues a stern warning. Not only does judgment begin with the household of God, but it begins with the household of God. That he will not protect covenant breakers, even if those covenant breakers are found among his own people. Your sin will find you out. 
if the exiles do not practice the holiness that God requires of them, they will suffer the same fate as their ancestors. He will reject them. He will expel them. He will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. That is a terrifying prospect. The flying scroll, God's judgment is swift, thorough, inescapable. And it's an incentive for holiness because he's made us holy. It's not as if we have to do these things to escape his judgment. It's because his judgment has already fallen on one that has made it possible for us to be holy. He's delivered Israel. He's delivered us. He's delivered his church. He has saved us. He has put his spirit within us. He has called us his adopted own. Now he just requires us to live a life that reflects the words of that covenant. That's why the woman in the basket is sent away because of what she represents. God must decisively and forcibly deal with sin by sending it where it belongs because we cannot. Now, lest you think that somehow God is some kind of divine misogynist who doesn't like women and advocates putting women in baskets, understand that the personification of wickedness as a woman here is symbolic. It's symbolic in the same way that wisdom is personified as a woman in Proverbs. And that the personification of wickedness as a woman is not to be interpreted as a negative evaluation of the fundamental nature, essential worth, and moral character of all women. Wickedness is personified as a woman because she symbolizes the iniquity of Israel, which is, in this instance, idolatry. And it's, it's very likely that the woman that Zechariah sees is, in fact, a figure of an idol. And the Bible, remember, equates idolatry with adultery. In his marvelous book, uh, We Become What We Worship, Greg Beale defines an idol as anything the heart clings to for ultimate security. He adds that what we revere, we resemble, either for ruin or restoration. You see an example of this in literature if you have ever read The Portrait of Dorian Gray. Portrait of Dorian Gray, a man wants to live forever, and he says, wouldn't it be interesting if all of the sins and evil acts we commit are transferred to the painting, yet we ourselves are untouched, and that becomes the premise for the story. And everything that Gray reveres, fame, popularity, money, wealth, all of that is transferred. The ugliness of the pursuit of that is transferred to the portrait. He must hide it in time because it depicts this shriveled harpy of a man. What we worship, we come to resemble. The Bible equates idolatry with adultery because idolatry violates the very first commandment. Have no other gods before me. He demands that we have no other gods before him because the Lord knows there is nothing and no one else to whom we can turn to for ultimate security. Remember, too, every command that God gives 
contains within it a promise. The reason why God says, have no other gods before me, is because he's the only God you need. Not only that, but he is the only God there is. You don't steal because God will provide for you whatever you need in virtue of your daily bread. You don't lie because telling the truth honors God and demonstrates a love for him and a love for your neighbor. Tim Keller's written another excellent book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods. And he says the one way, how do you discover whether or not you're worshiping an idol, what an idol is? He says, ask yourself one question. What is that thing in your life that if you lost it, you would almost lose the will to live? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that captivates your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you believe will give you only what God can give you. It can be money. It can be your health. It can be your children. It can be your marriage. It could be ministry. It could be possessions. It could also be the incessant need always to be right. That you must always have the last word. What is that thing in your life that if you lost it, you would almost lose the will to live? Calvin, John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. And so knowing this, God does what we cannot. He deals decisively with sin by sending it away from his people. He sends the woman in the basket to the land of Shinar. Shinar, another name for Babylon. Shinar is where Israel just spent 70 years in exile. Shinar is where the nations gathered in Genesis 11 to build the Tower of Babel. That construction project, as noble as it was, violated God's commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fulfill and fill the earth and subdue it. That construction project was a demonstration of idolatry because as the nations gather, they build it, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build something that will endure throughout eternity so that we will be glorified by what we have done. And God says, no, no, no. There is only one who is deserving of all glory, all honor, all power, all majesty. There is only one who is eternal. So he confuses the languages and he disperses his, the, people, the nations throughout the earth so that they may, under his common grace, fulfill that commandment to fill the earth and subdue it. It's idolatry, remember, that led Israel to, and Judah as well to defect from God. And their defection led to their defeat, their destruction, and their disintegration as a nation. That's the other thing, too. You realize that the people there might think, hey, you know what? Enough time went by. We just, what, what good luck. What a wonderful stroke of fortune that after 70 years, we're somehow back in our homeland. And God would remind them, this I had prophesied would happen to you. 
I would send you away, and then I will gather you back. So their exile and their restoration is a work of God from start to finish. And the woman in that basket is sent to Shinar in a really a lovely bit of irony. That she is sent to exile to the very place where they had come from exile. Because that's where she belongs. Outside the camp. Outside the nation. Out in the wilderness. Outside the wall of fire that protects the people of God. We see this in, in the New Testament when Paul writes to the Corinthians in terms of dealing with an unruly brother in, the, in that church. He says, send them out into the darkness. Because the church at that point represented the only point of light in a darkling world. The judgment and the exile of the woman wickedness is an act of God's grace. Because he sends iniquity into captivity so that his people can worship him wholeheartedly. He sends idolatry into exile so that his people will serve him exclusively. We cannot separate ourselves from our sin, so God must do it for us. The lesson is clear. If this generation, this generation that has been returned to the land, if this church or any church that names the name of Christ is to flourish, sin must be removed from our midst. It must be cleaned out, and idolatry and the idols that we have created must be banished so that we can love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Remember, too, I just go back for a moment. Again, most of the returning exiles grew up in a culture saturated with the idolatry of Babylon, uh, Babylonian and Persian paganism. And so the Jews that returned to, to Israel were likely more Babylonian than Jewish. Their worldview was influenced more by the religions, the values, the custom, and the culture of Babylon and Persia. And God always has a remnant of his elect wherever they, they are. But it's very likely that the majority of Jews who returned to Israel did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exclusively. They were like the Jews who came out of Egypt where Moses told them, put away your idols and worship the Lord your God. They had to learn what it meant to be Jewish. They had to learn all over again what it meant to be Israel, to be the people of God. They weren't Babylonian. They weren't Persian. They were Jews. They were covenant people. They were citizens of another kingdom, as are we. And we have to be very careful. And I'm going to be very careful as well. We live in the United States, and we are blessed to live here. But our citizenship is not here in the ultimate sense. Our allegiance. You know what got the early Christians in trouble with the Roman government? It wasn't that they weren't good citizens. It wasn't that they weren't good people, because they were. They did. They worked hard. They even paid their taxes. They paid their fair share, you might even say. What got the early Christians in trouble is that they were unafraid to say to the Roman government, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is. I may live in Rome. I may even be a Roman citizen. But my ultimate allegiance belongs to another kingdom and another king. We have to be careful at times 
living in our nation, as wonderful as it is, and the powerful things that our country has done. We are Americans, whether we have been born here or we have been adopted into this nation. But our true citizenship is in heaven. And we await a savior from there. Not from the political morass that now exists or the economic morass that not exists that now exists or the military morass that not exists. Our salvation comes not through the roots of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Our Savior comes from the Word of God who is the Word of God. That may offend you or not, but it is the truth. Our values. And I think we adopt our values from our country more easily than we are aware. Our customs and our culture, our entire worldview must be shaped by the scriptures. That's the lesson of this vision. A holy God must have a holy people. We can demonstrate our love for God through love of country, but our love of country must not rise above our love of God. Can't, or it's idolatry. Violates the first commandment. A holy God must have a people who love him with their whole heart, mind, and strength. And I speak, I speak as one, by the way, who has citizenship in two countries. Here, and in the great... White North. So I understand what it means to be born in one nation. And I understand what it means to live in another country and become a citizen of that country, having been naturalized as a Canadian. But you've got to be aware, if you paid any attention to the news, what happened to the North? And you've got to be aware of what's been going on the last two years here. It's vitally important to understand that our citizenship here as Americans is a gift. But we ought not idolize it. Because our Savior does not come from here. The, the guy that I work for, Ray... Uh, had a, a, an expression that I did not understand it the first time he used it. I had just finished mowing uh, the big lawn in the back of the mansion there, and he came over to me and he said, uh, that big flower bed uh, behind the house, he says, uh, <clears throat> I need you to go over and take the curse off it. And he walked away. I had no clue what that meant, take the curse off it. Then I saw the flower bed, overgrown with weeds, dandelions, leaves, dead blossoms. Oh, take the curse off it. He wants me to clean it up and clean it out. That's what I did. So I pulled weeds, I pulled dandelions, I raked leaves, I removed dead blossoms, I watered everything. Take the curse off it meant giving the flowers in that garden more space to blossom and to thrive. Take the curse off, it captures really the essence of Zechariah's sixth vision. It means that God does what we cannot. He deals decisively with sin by sending it where it belongs. 
takes the, take the curse off. It captures what God did at the cross through the crucifixion of Christ. Because the judgment of God is thorough and inescapable, Christ suffered God's judgment for us in our place. God forcefully and decisively sends sin where it belongs. And Christ carried our sins to the cross so that his death could put sin to death forever. And Christ cleaned out our sins so that we could worship God with a clean heart. He sent his son to take the curse off by dying for our sin on the cross. A holy God must have a holy people, a wholehearted people. The cross is where God dealt decisively with sin. It's where he sent sin where it belongs, onto the only one who can endure it and make full atonement for it. It's where God ransomed us from the futility of idolatry, not with the perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. The cross is where God makes an unholy people holy, that we might worship him and him alone. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have placed us where we are. We pray as well, Lord God, that we would not mistake this place as the ultimate place. That we are responsible as your citizens to be salt and light, to live by higher values, to adopt higher customs, a higher standard of living and morality, that we are to be a holy people for such we are through the blood of Christ and the grace of God and the power of your Holy Spirit. And, in this, and for these things we give you thanks, and in Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.